Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Put your hands together um, for Theodore Gray, who is the founder of um, TouchPress, the co-founder of Wolfram Research, as well as the author of The Elements, and writer-director of the 2013 iPad app of the year, Disney Animated. Please put your hands together for Theodore Gray. Yeah, so this is supposed to be an event about uh, being a developer. Um, so, so I'm going to tell you some stories about uh, situations where I found it useful to be a developer, to be somebody who knows how to write code. Um, code is basically a tool. And like all tools, it's at its most powerful when you're using it to create more tools. So kind of a theme of this talk is tools to make tools and, how, and what you can do with that. Um, and one of the most important questions about tools is that you know, when you arrive at a job site, what you can end up doing depends a lot on which tools you brought. Um, in my case, my tool of choice for almost anything is Mathematica. Um, so I started off you know, when I was a kid you know, uh, uh, making gunpowder and blowing stuff up and, and things like that, and actually got a you know, degree in chemistry kind of accidentally, um, but dropped out and, and ended up co-founding this company called Wolfram Research with Stephen Wolfram, makers of Mathematica. So you, you may have heard of Wolfram Alpha, which is probably our most sort of popular public-facing thing, which is an online and, and there's also a Wolfram Alpha app, sort of computation engine. But really what Mathematica is, is a, it's a technical computing system. It's desktop software that people use um, to, to, you know, to solve complicated sort of technical problems. Um, but I'm actually not here to talk about the process of developing Mathematica, but rather about um, what happened after I went from being a developer of Mathematica to a user of it. Um, from the very beginning, I thought of Mathematica not so much as a technical computing system, but as um, uh, a thing with an interactive document format. And I actually wrote several books using that um, publishing platform. But the world really, world kind of wasn't ready for that yet. Uh, and then in 2002, uh, my life sort of took a little bit of a turn, um, mainly uh, starting from a confusion. So I was reading this book, Uncle Tungsten, an excellent book. Um, and I was reading a particular paragraph in there uh, in which he talks about a periodic table display in a science museum. And I thought he was talking about a table that was shaped like the periodic table. And then I thought, wow, that's a really cool idea. And then you read a little bit farther along, and you realize it's actually he's just talking about a table on the wall, same as everybody else's periodic table. But that kind of planted this seed of an idea that there ought to be a periodic table table. And as far as I could tell, nobody in the world had actually built one. You know, I searched the internet, I could not find anybody who built a table like this. So I thought, okay, I guess I'm the guy to do that. And so I built this table. Um, and then I thought, you know, I should get some elements to go in this table, like examples of the elements. Um, and I discovered eBay, which was coming around about the same time. And it turns out there's very few things that you can't get on eBay. Uh, this was a couple years later. Things got kind of out of hand getting things to go on the table. Um, this was Oliver Sacks, the author of that particular book, who eventually came to see my table because I told him you know, it was his fault that I had built this table because he wrote this confusing paragraph. Uh, then I won a thing called uh, the Ig Nobel Prize, which is kind of a joke prize. It's really the only thing that a periodic table table could win. Um, and I made a website. 
uh, about it because I had all these things and I was taking pictures of them. Um, I ended up writing a book called The Elements um, because eventually I had so many elements and had so many little stories to tell about them that I felt like I really need to like put this all together somewhere. Um, and you know, this, this is, it's a book, it's each element gets a page and it's pretty nice, I think. It's sold now about a million copies in 23 languages in print. Um, but the entire time that I was working on this book, I was kind of feeling like this is not really all it could be because I knew that all those objects that are in the book, I'd actually photographed them on a turntable with an elaborate setup that I'd made for this, taking pictures from every side. And I actually had videos of all those things rotating. And there's much more to see in many cases. But there was no platform, like there was no place that you could publish that in an electronic form that would make sense at the time. Um, and then Steve Jobs had the, he sort of descended from the higher plane that he occupies and handed the world the iPad, this device that nobody had any idea that, it, that they wanted it, but as soon as you see it, you have to have one. Um, and he did that like two months after I published the elements in print form, thinking the whole time, there's got to be some better way of publishing this book than on paper. And so I immediately thought, this is perfect. This is exactly the device. Since I've been waiting for this since 1992. This is the thing that I need to do. And they gave a two-month head start between the announcement of the iPad and when the thing actually shipped. So like everybody had a, 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 a head start. Um, and so this was my plan during those two months, that we would uh, you know, start off inventing a new kind of ebook because at the time ebooks were quite static things. They're basically just like, you know, PDF document of the book and you read the text. And I thought we could do something better. Um, and then uh, there were no tools to make ebooks like that because they were a new kind of ebook that we were trying to come up with. So we had to invent the tools to make it and then make those tools and then uh, actually produce the thing um, and then put together. Uh, uh, a marketing plan for it, and kind of as an afterthought, we decided we should make a company that to officially be the company that made this thing, so we could say we could tell people who made it, um, and then submit it to the App Store. And we did all of that in two months. Uh, and one of the reasons was because I was able to build things like this. So this is a user interface and underlying application that I built in Mathematica. This is a Mathematica document here uh, for the express purpose of producing that app. And the whole app was, in fact, created essentially from scratch uh, using tools written in Mathematica that I wrote in about two weeks, because that was the available time. Um, this is, it's kind of like a page layout tool. You can drag things around, except it, it's a page layout tool where you can also rotate the things if you want to make them fit better. Um, and so this is a, a screen from that. And, um, uh, you know, it, it was kind of worthwhile because we got it done on time and we showed it to Apple and they liked it and they ended up you know, putting it on the iPads that were sent out to journalists a couple of days before the ship date uh, and they used it in TV commercials and it was, it was nice. And the whole thing, um, the initial version of the elements that first shipped, essentially absolutely everything in it was output from Mathematica. So the, the text is all actually bitmap images that were rendered by Mathematica 
and deployed as bitmaps on the device, which is really stupid. Uh, and there's lots of reasons not to do that. But we only had two months. And that was what we could do in two months we, to get this out. And the, the runtime is actually an extremely thin little thing built on Cocos 2D at the time. Um, it's since there's been an update, and the whole thing is all much more modern now and more sensible. Um, but it, this was possible, and we could get it done because I kind of had this toolkit of, of Mathematica that I was very familiar with and was able to use that to kind of bootstrap the process of developing this app. Um, and you know, I think at the, at the time, under those circumstances, Mathematica was probably really the only tool that one could have used to do all the different things that were necessary to put together um, that app. Um, but that's not actually why I used it. Uh, and the reason I used it is because it's the only thing I really know. I mean, I know C code and I know Mathematica. And I just got really lucky that happened to be in the right place where I had the raw material in terms of text and images and everything, um, and happened to have the exact tool that was needed to put that together. Uh, otherwise, I just, you know, just wouldn't have got done. Um, this is the point at which I insert the shameless plug for the sequel to the elements, which is called Molecules, which has just come out um, uh, in both print form and as an app. And in fact, we just found out this morning that Molecules is um, uh, in the list of best of 2014 iPad apps, which is very nice. So yeah, so after we came out with the elements, um, we, we kind of we had this company touch press that we just sort of invented. Um, retroactively to be the producer of the elements. And uh, we ended up making, you know, so far we've made about 20 or so different apps. Um, and we don't use Mathematica for everything. Uh, we have lots of people, um, you know, developers who work for us now who have different toolkits that they bring to the job who are familiar with, you know, processing or, you know, just different, different systems, different languages. Obviously, most of the Objective-C. Um, so, you know, they have different hammers and they see different shaped nails. Um, but I still, you know, really love my Mathematica and I use it whenever I can um, because it's the tool that I'm familiar with. So I'm going to show you a couple examples. Um, so this is the um, Disney animated app, which, which was the best iPad app of 2013, according to Apple. Um, I thought it was pretty good. Um, it's basically a, it's a book about animation that doesn't have the problem that all other books about animation have. There's these thousands and thousands of books that you can buy. You open them up, and there's pictures that aren't moving. It's like, this is a book about animation, pictures that move, but the pictures are not moving. So we decided to make a book about animation where the pictures do move, along with a few other things. Um, one example is uh, this is. Uh, is the, the, the snow effect in Frozen. At the time that we were making this app, Frozen wasn't out yet, but it was going to be. Um, and we wanted to put in a thing where you could use your finger and trace on the screen and have it create, you know, sort of what I refer to as authentic replica Frozen snow, just like you can get these little authentic replica, you know, whatever, Disney characters. Um, and the way that we ended up doing this is that I sat in a room with the effects people who made the actual frozen snow with a piece of Mathematica code that I was sort of in real time tweaking and adjusting uh, to try to get something that looks conceptually similar. The actual algorithm is way too slow. It takes you know, minutes to render every frame of the movie. And we had to do something that runs in real time. So we were able to kind of iteratively, in a very rapid way, develop an algorithm. It's then deployed, of course, in C code on the actual device. Um, 
But again, it was very useful to have this sort of flexible toolkit to bring to that problem. Another thing we tried to do in this app is answer the question of how can you have like a single image that represents an entire movie, like compress a whole movie down into one static image. Um, and this is, this is a piece of Mathematica code that I'm very pleased with. It's very simple. And what it produces as output is this image. And what this shows is all of the pixels, the, the, you know, the individual color pixels from one frame out of the Lion King displayed in a three-dimensional cube, sort of like red, green, blue, or whatever the axes are exactly. Um, and then it's done a mathematical analysis on these. You can see there's, there's not random way these, these colors are. There's like groupings of them. And it's identified sort of dominant groups of associated colors and, and then found sort of a mean color for each of those. Uh, and it turns out you can do that very well with animated movies because they tend to have big patches of color. Um, and this is a little sh uh, movie that shows uh, the process of producing what we ended up with, which is to take images, uh, take frames, break them up into these groups of dominant colors, sort them, and then uh, and do that for every frame of the movie. And you can see this is kind of well, going to go back and forth. So you see it. Yeah, we'll go back to the frame. Now. Um, yeah, so here's, here's one image. We take the pixels. We sort them, like all the browns go in one bin and all the greens go in another bin. And then we sort those bins up. We've turned that into a line. Now we're doing it for all the neighboring frames. And it's now, you know, there's hundreds of thousands or like 100,000 frames or so in a movie. And if you do that, you get something like this. So this is a, a bit of... Lion King, and you can see like there was obviously a lot of sky and a lot of you know savanna and grass and such. Then it was maybe in a forest, um, and this is all of Lion King. Uh, and if you know the story of Lion King, you can actually pick out quite a few of the the like here's where there's all the red down there. That's where they're fighting. There's fire, and the the whole place is on fire, and it's really terrible. And then uh, and then it starts raining, and it's like nighttime, and it's really bad. Uh, it's terrible. And then the sun comes up, and everybody's all happy, and then you go into the credits. Um, and you can kind of read the whole movie, the whole sort of mood of the movie through that. And this image is the result of about 24 hours of grinding on an eight-core Mac tower, uh, doing sort of this sort of mathematical cluster analysis of the, image of the pixel values in groups of frames throughout the entire movie and then assembling them into a single image. The output is directly from Mathematica. Uh, this is every Disney animated movie since Snow White at the beginning. Um, so there's like 50 or so of them. It's every full-length, fully animated feature film released by Walt Disney Animation Studios, which is a very carefully crafted definition. It gets you all the movies you want and not the movies you don't want. Um, and you can see all kinds of patterns. And in the, in the app, what you can do is you can touch anywhere in this image, and it'll pop up a thumbnail, a little, you know, little mini thumbnail of that scene in the movie. So you can swipe through a whole movie, and you can swipe up and down, and you basically see um, everything that Disney has done in its entire history uh, over the past 75 years. Um, and there's a statistic I like about this image. Uh, on a retina, uh, iPad, which is however many millions of pixels that is, 
Each pixel represents about a full day of work, of human effort to produce that pixel. Because in order to find out the value of the color of that pixel, you have to have made the movie and done the analysis. And so in order to get this image, they had to spend 75 years and you know, millions of man hours of work producing all those films that we could then condense down. So there's a tremendous amount of sort of human effort represented by that. And again, this is output of Mathematica directly. Um, and now I want to talk about something completely different. Uh, another example of tools. So here's a line drawing. Um, now supposing that you decide you wanted to draw, you wanted to um, trace out this image without ever lifting your pen. Uh, and all the lines touch each other, so you could do that. But it's kind of tricky to figure out, like, how would you actually have an efficient path that would connect everything together? And it turns out this is uh, a, a sort of a standard mathematical problem. Uh, you may be familiar with the traveling salesman problem, which is, a, you know, one, this is not exactly the traveling salesman problem. This is the Chinese postman problem, which is closely related. And the way you start with this problem is by sort of uh, turning the diagram into what's called a network or a graph. So this is the sort of logical connectivity of that particular diagram. It shows where the lines meet and where the, what the sort of you know, network structure of the drawing is. Uh, and given that, there's a function called Mathematica that will produce an efficient routing through it. Uh, and this is the, the particular route that's produced. So this is a way of drawing. It will sometimes go over the same area, because it has to. Um, now, you may be wondering why on earth would you want to do that? Like, why not just pick up your pen and draw it in a sensible way? Uh, the answer is because you might actually be stitching it instead. So this is a computerized embroidery machine, which is stitching out that particular path. Uh, and this is what it looks like after it's all finished and kind of made, made a little prettier. Um, uh, and now you may be wondering, why, why am I using Mathematica to do this? Isn't there software that makes embroidery patterns? And yes, there is. Um, but it tends to be, first of all, kind of crappy and uh, not very automated. Uh, it's a very manual sort of process to make patterns like this. Uh, why, do you, why would we care that it's manual? Well, because um, in this case, we're interested in doing it many times uh, so that we can produce things like this, which is quilted animation that you don't see very often. Um, and that's not something you can do unless you can automate the process to do it over and over again many times. So uh, this is something that uh, I've actually been working with with um, Nina Paley, who's right here, who will be, will be handing out an example um, shortly of uh, an even more elaborate application of this process. So this is a $1,000 bill, a, a scan of a $1,000 bill. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a line drawing, if you go back and forth. So there's the scan. Uh, this is a single line drawing of the entire $1,000 bill. Um, it's a huge amount of work to produce all these lines. Uh, this is a close-up here. There's even, for example, the, what are called guilloche patterns, which is a sort of security printing. It turns out to be a, um, quite a tricky thing to do. Um, and again, it, you need to, if you want to stitch this thing, you need to connect all those lines into a single continuous line. Um, 
Okay. All oh, right. Yeah. So this. So here's another example. This is a tool that I created in Mathematica, of course, to design the guillaches. It has a bunch of sliders, and you can change various parameters, uh, basically to try to simulate what the thing on the on a real thousand dollar bill looks like to get sort of the same impression. It's essentially impossible to actually duplicate the actual curves on the bill, because translating backwards from the curve to the mathematics that produced the curve is sort of cryptographically difficult. It's actually, you know, you can't do it. There's, there were certain settings that were used in the machine that produced the engraving plates. And one of the reasons that provides security in the past for bills is because it was basically impossible for anybody to look at the pattern and figure out how to set the machine to make a new engraving plate that would exactly replicate it. So this is sort of a conceptual approximation of what the real $1,000 bill uh, patterns look like. These are a few of the networks um, that represent the connectivity of the different parts of that bill. Um, here's the main one that has the main guilloche patterns in the frame all around it. Um, there's a close-up of one little corner of it. There's, uh, what is it, so 50,000 nodes, 64,000 connections between them, uh, and about 350,000 stitches that go end up into going into making um, this, which is a quilted $1,000 bill. Uh, and this is a quilting robot, sort of like a giant XY plotter um, that's uh, running over this pattern. The pattern, of course, is uh, you know, produced by output from Mathematica's fine postman tour function. Um, uh, here's a, uh, this is actually a GoPro camera that's mounted on the stitching head. So the, sta the fabric is actually stationary, and there's this big machine that's moving around it. Um, it's about to go on a little tour. Um, okay, yeah, so here's, uh, here's Nina actually doing the edges by hand. Um, so that was a, yeah, so 10,000. So this, this is our vault where we keep the quilted money. Yes, yeah, so this is our, this is our, our office is in an old bank. So this is actually upstairs from where that machine is for real. Um, uh, we have a website, um, quiltbank.com, where you can actually buy this money. Of course, you can only buy it at face value. Um, so currently, th they're $1,000, um, but we're actually hoping this $100 design, we can actually be able to sell it for $100, um, which I think will be a little more attractive to people in terms of whether they want, actually want to buy one. Um, uh, yeah, that's the $100 design there. Um, we also uh, will, of course, launder the money before sending it out. Um, yeah, so... Um, so the theme of this is tools, right? And I love this saying, a poor craftsman blames his tools. I like that saying because I think there's a certain tendency among some people to, to sort of spend way too much time on tools and you know, setting up everything just right. And this applies both to actual physical tools. You know, I, I used to get this catalog where they had the most amazing woodworking tools because I was you know, doing woodworking like building that table. And it just looked like nobody would ever actually use this tool. It was too beautiful. And, you know, and the same thing that happens with programmers also. There are certain people who will just spend all their time uh, setting up the perfect editor environment and just every, everything exactly right and never actually get anything done. Um, but on the other hand, you know, without the right tools, you just can't get the job done. And often what you can do depends on you know, having the right tool. Um, and I think the... the um, the answer to this is that really, and this applies both to physical tools, building things with your hands, and to coding, that the sort of ultimate evolution of being a craftsman is to build your own tools. 
uh, people do this with woodworking. You know, you, you sharpen your own chisels, you, you machine your own chisel to just the right size that you want. And if you're going to be a programmer or a developer, you end up building a lot of tools that you use. And the, those tools that you've built become sort of um, you know, part of what makes you effective as a developer. Um, and you know, I, my tool of choice is Mathematica. Um, that, and I'm not suggesting that that means everybody should use Mathematica. I, I once had a conversation with John Warnock, who was the uh, founder of Adobe. Uh, and we were both kind of into photography at the time, and I'd written um, uh, a photo organizing software in Mathematica. And you know, we were talking about this, and he said, oh yeah, he wrote a photo organizing software in PostScript. Because you, know, you, you may think of PostScript as a language that's used to define documents, like the EPS or PDFs are basically po based on PostScript. Um, but it's actually a full-featured programming language, and you can actually write code in PostScript. And he had written his photo organizing thing in PostScript. That's nutty. Like, nobody in their right mind would do that, except the guy who invented PostScript. Uh, and that was his language of choice. Um, so, you know, my language of choice is Mathematica. Um, but what I am saying, you know, and, and it wouldn't necessarily be for anybody else, um, but what I am saying is that you should pick a language, you should pick a tool set, and uh, you know, make it your own and use that to build up a library of your own tools. Um. We would actually um, like to open it up right now to questions from everybody in our audience. If you do have a question, just give us a signal, and Jennifer or myself will come to you with a microphone. Besides Mathematica, what other coding languages does your uh, team use? Well, so um, you know, because we're developing iPad apps or iPhone apps, we use uh, Objective C, and now I guess we're you know people are starting to use Swift um, because that's the language that you write you know you write for in this platform. Um, you know personally, I you know started with straight C and then and then um, Objective C and C plus plus and you know various flavors of C. Um, and, and I mean that's that's sort of the fundamental tool. Uh, we also use. Well, we use Cocos 2D. We've looked at Unity. We don't use Unity currently, but I think we probably should. Um, and you know, we have a lot of people who write um, little tools uh, in various scripting languages. We have somebody who's good with pr processing, which is nice. Um, we have me, me, who's into Mathematica. Um, uh, but people use just whatever they're familiar with. You know, PHP and um, whatever they're familiar with. It does, it, to some extent, it doesn't really matter which language it is, as long as it's you know, reasonably fle flexible. Um, you know, sort of diversity of languages is good, too, I think. How are you doing today? My name is Wesley. I'm kind of new to programming, and I would like to know, what would you use for beginners? Um, you know, it's been such a long time since I've um, been a beginner. Uh, like if I was getting started, when I was getting started, the answer was actually Pascal, a language nobody even knows exists anymore. Um, so that's probably a bad choice. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of the language, like C, C and its variations, C++ and C Sharp and Objective-C, that is kind of the workhorse language that all, um, software that's deployed to you know, desktop or, or, or tablets or iOS or Android or any of those sorts of things um, is written in. It's kind of the basic 
powerful computer language that everybody works in is not a particularly good language and it's not particularly friendly for beginners. It's just what everyone uses. Um, uh, and, and actually, you know, frankly, I don't know what the right language to get started with is today. Uh, it's probably not C. It's, who knows, maybe somebody here has a better answer than I do because it's like not, a, not something that I'm uh, all that familiar with. Yep. I've looked at the MIT has a language. MIT has a language called Scratch, I think it is. Scratch, yeah. Yeah, yeah my, my kids um, uh, got into Scratch. And then I guess there's a variation called Squeak, I think, is like a, a GUI for Scratch or and something. And then the Khan Academy just came out with this, you know, start coding. Uh, do an hour of coding with your kid a day. And they have a, a similar kind of language, like Scratch. Right, okay, yeah. Khan Academy is always a good answer to anything if you want to, you know, anything you want to learn, go to Khan Academy. Um, and, you know, I, I, I could tell you that Mathematica would be a good language to start with, but the problem is it's kind of specialized and it's not necessarily the optimal one for everyone to know. It's a great language. I love it. I use it all the time. It's relatively, you know, straightforward to start with, but it's quite different from most other languages. Um, so, yep. Uh, I'm just going to jump in okay great just a quick question for somebody that's just starting with objective c so how did how did you translate things from mathematica you know how did you incorporate them into an app that was written in objective c well so the answer is that nothing directly gets translated from mathematica into so for example you know in the case of elements uh what what i used mathematica for was to do the page layouts and actually reduce them down to bitmap images so what went from mathematica into the app was those images, you know, like all, like all the different viewpoints of each object that got processed through scaled, et cetera, and Mathematica sent out into files and then assembled into, uh, into you know, some weird compressed format that we invented. Um, in the case of Disney Animated, uh, it was like we, you know, we, we designed the frozen snow algorithm as a piece of Mathematica code. And then I just sat down with one of our uh, our 3D, it turns out it was GL actually, OpenGL code that was what actually implemented the movement of those things. And we just sort of read through the code and rewrote it, you know, from scratch, but which is pretty easy to do because it's basically a question of like, what are the parameters? There's like, you know, certain, you know, automatic thing that figures out little curly cues and like, how do you balance the symmetry of those curly cues to make them look good? So there's certain mathematical model that's used to do that. And it's, you just rewrite it in the other language. Um, in the case of the color maps, so when you open the Disney Animated app, which you should all get also too, because it's a really cool app, um, you know, when you see the image on the screen, that was, you know, a PNG that was produced by Mathematica and got stuck into the layout. But all the code around it is, you know, is, is Objective-C written completely separately. So it's, it's more like it's a, you know, it's not so much that we translate stuff from Mathematica, it's that we use it as a, to as a tool in the production process to, uh, you know, as part of the workflow to produce assets that go into the final app. Um, I think there was a question over here. Um, first, a suggestion for the guy who wants to know what, what um, language is easiest to start. I started with Ruby. It was very easy and straightforward. Um, and then I, swift, I switched over to Swift, which was also basically the same, easy and straightforward. Mm -hmm. And then um, <clears throat> a question for you. With your apps being at the top of the charts for the last two years, where does the inspiration come from? 
um, for these apps and how do you guys build so much traction for the apps in which you develop? Um, so the inspiration, I mean, so I, I have a very simple question that I always ask when somebody comes and proposes an app that we should make. The first question is like, why should this be an app? And fairly often, before we even get started with a project, the answer to that question is it shouldn't be an app. You know, this should be a television show or this should be a print book. Or, you know, there's just, there's just no reason why this particular project ought to be an app. Because the medium of interactive, you know, touch, et cetera, may just not anything, add anything to it. So, I mean, for example, a detective novel, you know, where you have, you know, you're reading about this mystery and there's different characters that come in and you don't want to read the last page because you don't want to find out what happened. And, you know, it's all about the writer creating tension and telling you just the right thing at just the right moment to make it suspenseful. Um, you know, that just doesn't work if you try to add interactivity to it. And there's lots of examples of people who've tried to take books like that and make them into interactive apps, and they just don't work. It's better off as a straight book, you know, just a print book or a straight static ebook. Um, so the first thing we do is like only work on projects where we can clearly identify this is a reason why it ought to be an app. Like, and, and, you know, Disney Animated is a good example. So uh, like I said earlier, all the print books in the world about animation, you know, they're books about pictures that move that have pictures in them that don't move. It's just, you know, it just doesn't make sense. You want to, you know, you don't want to have like the whole movie of a certain movie. You want to pick out a scene and you say something like, you know, look, isn't this interesting how they did this? Look at this technique that they used. Or, you know, here's an explanation of how the rough animation gets retraced and turned into the, you know, how they then color it and make the final animation. Uh, and you want to be able to have that text that's explaining what's going on and teaching something. And then you want to have a picture and you want to be able to just touch the picture and just have it move. Just do its little thing for maybe just a second or two. Or maybe you can kind of move, you know, in, in Disney Animated, you can move up and down while you're watching something. You can see the different layers of animation uh, between the, the storyboard and the rough animations and the final animations. You can kind of see how those relate to each other in a way that you just can't do in a print book and that you also just basically can't do in linear video. Like if you have a half-hour director's commentary or, you know, making of special on a DVD or whatever, it still just doesn't have the same flavor to it as a book that you can read, but the pictures move. Um, so I think, you know, that's, another example is music. There's lots of books written about trying to explain music, but they're on paper. You know, how's that supposed to work? They print little staves of music, and you're supposed to be able to hear that from looking at it or something. I can't do that. Um, so we have things that, about Beethoven's Ninth and Vivaldi and, and things that, you know, really help you understand that music and have it make sense uh, because you can hear it and you can see visualizations of it and read what's going on all at the same time. Um, so like, that's like number one is make apps about things that it makes sense to make apps about. Um, and in terms of how we get the traction, I mean, one thing we do is make really, really good apps. Like we have a fantastically good team. They're based almost entirely in London, which is actually where I'm heading to tomorrow. Um, uh, we have people from, you know, not just software developers, but we have people from television. We have a lot of like ex-BBC people because the BBC is downsizing. They're firing everybody, so we hire them. Um, uh, so that you know, they're very talented filmmakers uh, and producers. Um, 
we probably spend too much money making some of these things. Uh, they're very expensive to produce. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we bring, uh, one of the reasons we get traction is because we bring uh, value to Apple by making these sorts of things. Um, the way I think of it is, um, you know, imagine you're a parent and your kid wants an iPad and you're thinking like, I just got you an Xbox. You know, you want me to spend another $500 on a thing and you're just going to play Flappy Bird on it or, or whatever. You know, why should I buy you this toy? And then they say, oh, there's the Elements app. Well, they might learn something, you know, or there's Beethoven's Ninth, or, you know, there's these apps that really show this isn't just a game, it's not just a toy, it's not just a games platform. There's actually some wholesome, useful, like, enriching content that your kid might actually end up learning something from it. And I think Apple likes that, and we like that, and, you know, uh, it kind of works. It's a, it's a good set of apps to have. Um, so I think that's, that's why we get traction. Mr. Gray, I got a two-part question for you. Uh, first of all, to expound on what you were saying about your team, uh, how, much, how big is your team here in Urbana as well as in the UK? And the second part question is, how many man hours does one of your apps take, for example, molecules? So our team in Urbana, Illinois, is basically me. Um, Plus, uh, Nick Mann, who's a photographer who did um, most of the pictures in the elements and all the pictures in molecules um, working in my studio. Um, so he's based in Urbana also, although he travels a lot. So basically two, you know, two people uh, in Illinois and about 30 people in London, uh, one guy in Ireland. Um, and you know, of the 30, there's probably, I don't know, six or eight people that you'd call developers, um, and then uh, producers and as assistant producers. We, we, you know, we, we kind of come from a television terminology background, so we call them producers and, and APs um, and editors, because we also have some influence from the uh, publishing industry. Um, London is a really interesting place, because it's full of media of all kinds. It's, it's like it has a, a greater and more interesting diversity of different kinds of media production than really anywhere else in the world. I mean, you've got New York, um, you know, it has a film industry kind of, but it's very insular and, you know, it's very kind of New York. And you've got Los Angeles that produces nothing but crap of all kinds. Um, and London really has, you know, in terms of interactive media production, high quality television production, high quality movie um, people, and, you know, really top-notch technical skills. There isn't really any place other than London that pulls that all together. Um, part, plus, my partner Max is the other founder of Touch Press, is based there and has a studio and a building, and that's why we ended up in London. Oh, man hours. Oh, yeah. Uh, gosh, I don't know. Um, lots. Um, I mean, something like molecules, you know, took me basically a year. Um, maybe a year and a half if you count the writing the book and the app. Uh, and then there were, I don't know, I mean at the peak, maybe a dozen people that would have been working on it total and maybe half a dozen over a period of months doing the, um, the production of the app. Um, I'm not sure what that works out into man hours, but it's a lot of work making these things. Um, we did the elements. I mean, so in the elements it was basically 
two and a half people for two months, but like with no life at all other than working on that. So you could may as well count that as six months of work done in two months. Um, and it was really rough. I mean, like we really, we really got it down to the wire in terms of actually getting it finished in time and, and needed an update shortly after. Um. Question. Uh, I'm curious, why could you not do the elements on uh, a PC or, I, or iMac platform? What is it about the iPad that drove you to do, and, and, how, how, and how do you decide that right. question? Well, so Is we actually do have now, um, you know, several years later, we came out with um, a Mac OS, you know, desktop and laptop Mac version of the Elements, and there's even a Windows version of the Elements. Um, but the reason basically boils down to two things. One is, uh, do you really want to sit down at a desktop computer to read a book, um, or even a laptop? Um, it's just not a physical setup that most people are comfortable spending hours reading like they would a book, whereas an iPad or, or an iPhone is something that people are very comfortable with. Now it's like this is the way people read books, is you know, probably mostly on phones, but also on, uh, on iPads or you know, Kindles or any other such devices. It's, like that's a, it's, just, it's the right size. You can lie down in bed with it, and you know, it just kind of works physically. But probably more important than that is the iTunes store, the app store, being a place where it's actually like both convenient and socially acceptable to buy something like this and get it as a download. Um, you know, prior to the App Store, if you wanted to sell a piece of software for five or ten dollars, like how would you do that? You know, there, there were sort of ways of doing it online. There still are, but it's just not something that people are comfortable with. It's the distribution mechanisms were not. The touching of the screen is really nice. I don't, I don't think that's actually a determining factor. It is very nice. Um, and you know, the, the, you know, the combined effect, I think one of the reasons that Elements really has done as well as it is, is you know, it's a combination of the platform is the right shape and size, and you can hold it. There's a store that you can buy it in that makes sense, and it's like it's already got your credit card, and you just kind of click, and you're done. Um, and, and then you get it, and then it's just, it's just magical, and you really have to try it. You just you spin the things, and they go around, and it's just really cool. And Molecules actually takes that to another level. We have these uh, dynamic interactive molecules where it's actually a, it's a, a scientifically accurate molecular dynamics simulation of molecular structures, um, which you can touch with your fingers, several of them, and you can pull the molecules around and... Uh, you know, see how they bend and, and move, because molecules are actually very live, you know, flexible, vibrating things. They're not like you see in textbooks. Um, it also has, uh, you know, all the same stuff as the elements, as text and rotating objects and little bits of video where you can see different kinds of oils glooping and things like that. Um, uh, so, I mean, the, touch, the touching is really nice, but I think it's actually the form factor and the store that are the determining difference. Um, One more. Thanks very much for this great presentation. Um, so one of the things that was mentioned was code changed the world. So tell us a little about, you know, what do, what do you see the world, how do you see the world changing? It's totally true. I mean, just think of what the world was like before computers. You know, I mean, I, I just look at my kids, you know, they, like, they don't have this concept of a question that you can't get the answer to. Like, you'd have to get on your bicycle and ride to the 
library and find a book and like six hours later you might or might not have found an answer. Like that, that whole concept doesn't exist anymore. You just open your phone and like, you know, you can't have arguments in bars anymore. It's like, <laughs> and that's all code. Like that's, and, and the fact that you have a phone that you can type in and uh, I mean, uh, what aspect of modern life hasn't been, you know, fundamentally rearranged by that? Um, and I think it's, you know, if you think of other things that have had as large an effect on people's lives, you know, you have to look at things like electricity, you know, really fundamental, or, or you know, the automobile. Uh, you know, before you reach other things that have kind of had as big an effect as computer technology, all of which is run completely off of code. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's, it's both, you know, tremendously, you know, powerful in the same way that things like electricity and cars are, but also almost uniquely um, accessible. Like any, you know, famously anybody in their garage, um, if you have a knack for it, can start writing something. And, you know, my kids, they put up websites. Uh, and they write, you know, little bits of code. And maybe it's, you know, very fancy. Maybe it's not so fancy. Um, but they're right up there. And like, like that one in particular put up a website, sent me a link to it, and didn't bother to tell me that it was her website. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool website. I wonder who made this. And it was just, you know, she just did it on a whim. Um, and, you know, what other technology gives you that kind of ability to just put yourself out there in the world uh, and, you know, and, and, I don't know, sort of participate in the, the communication of the world. Great. Well, if we could please put your hands together one more time for Theodore Gray.